Well, good morning and a warm welcome to you. If you're a visitor here or this is your first time, then a special welcome to you too. My name's David, I'm a member here and um, pleased to serve where I can, usefully, hopefully. So let me tell you a little bit about our service this morning, what's going to happen. Um, this is our regular worship service, um, but we will be um, sharing communion towards the end of the service. Um, there'll be junior church, and I'll let you know when the children can go to that. Um, we're delighted to have Jonathan Groves with us today. Many of you will know Jonathan, not least for his involvement with um, our partner organization, the Caruso Trust. Later this year, actually, I believe Jonathan will be coming and reporting to us on that in, in detail. But um, we're pleased today Jonathan's going to be bringing us a word from Matthew 17, um, titled, From Glory to Glory Via Suffering. So we look forward to hearing from Jonathan later. I will be reading from Matthew chapter 17 and from verse 1 through till verse 13. And I'll be reading from the NIV version. So from verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up shelters, three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, lovely to be back in Bankery again and to be sharing from God's Word with you this morning. It will be helpful for you to have a, a Bible open. We'll be uh, going through... Uh, the set of verses uh, today, uh, but there'll be other passages I'll refer to, and they will come up on the screen behind. So, if you either your Bible or the or the notice sheet in front of you would be good. 
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for these passages, which sometimes can seem tricky or confusing, or, or we just don't understand the relevance to the overall gospel message. So we do pray that you will be amongst us, speaking to each of us, challenging us where we need to be challenged and comforting us where we need comforting. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Right. (laughs) We all know in these times of, of conflict, like we've seen in Ukraine at the moment, the danger of human beings seeking their own vain glory. We can see what happens when the dictatorial leader of a country wants by any means and at any cost to seek to recreate the glory of of a nation's long-lost empire. We see the the innocent suffering that, that results from that craving for human glory. But you know, the Bible's description of glory is very different. Not only in the way that the Bible talks about God the Father as being the the all-glorious one, like that vision in in Isaiah chapter 6, not only in the way it talks about the Lord Jesus as being risen, ascended, glorified, but in the way that it portrays spectacular glory as as being like light. And it's not just God's glory that is shown in this way as being bright, but, but it actually talks about glory as being the destiny of everyone who is joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our destiny. We often think of of human glory as being a very bad thing. And indeed, when that glory is selfishly fueled by, by sins like pride and greed, then it becomes a terrible, ugly parody of the real thing. But we must be aware that our glorification, our being made glorious, is an integral part of God's plan, the plan of salvation that includes the forgiveness of sins, but ultimately it is our glorification now and in the future. And it's something that as Christians we receive freely from God and and we must receive humbly because it's one of the many gifts of his grace that he makes available to us as his followers. Indeed, the Bible tells us, in fact, that spectacular glory in the future awaits those who are joined to the Lord Jesus. Not only will one day we see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, but it says that we will share in his glory Well, before we go any further, let's just stop a second and say, well, what do we mean by God's glory? It's a term that we often bandy around. What do we really mean by it? 
Well, I find the most helpful way to think about God's glory as being God's character, God's attributes, if you like, being like God, and that God-likeness being made visible to all around, to the world around. So holiness, righteousness, compassion, grace, mercy, creativity, all those things declared publicly for all to see. That is declaring God's glory. That is God's glory, his very nature being made visible. If you think back to the creation, back at the beginning in Genesis, men and women shared God's glory. It's, it then this whole business of glory becomes an integral part of the Bible narrative. You go from glory in creation all the way through to glory in new creation. Genesis 1 says that God created mankind in his own image. Well, if God's glory is openly displaying his nature, he created us to share many of those perfect, pure attributes, to live holy lives. And it says in Psalm 8 that he crowned, we were crowned with glory and honour. David said, what is mankind men and women, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. We are meant to be glorious reflections of the God we serve. But as we know, we fell. We disobeyed God. We fell from that perfect glory of God. As Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet we still retain some measure, maybe only a small measure, of God's image and God's glory in our lives now. That's confirmed in Genesis 9, verse 6. But the glory of God in us is badly tainted. We all know that. We sin. And for centuries, mankind limped along in this faded glory, unable to recreate that long-lost glory of God in us. We created vain glory for ourselves through personal power-mongering and collective empire. In Bible times, there were the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And today... We see just the same happening, only, only today the weapons are more powerfully destructive than they ever have been before. But then at a point in history, during the time of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, God broke into our world in the human person of Jesus of Nazareth. God came to dwell amongst us, living that perfect God-glorifying life as one of us, a human just like us. As Paul says in Colossians, he, Jesus, is the perfect image of the invisible God. But not only did Jesus live the perfect life that we were so unable to do, 
He died a sacrificial death in our place so that we could be put right. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 puts it perfectly. We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour. And why? Why? Jesus crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. Yet death couldn't hold on to him. He had a glorious, victorious resurrection. Jesus then fulfilled the promise to us from Psalm 8 that we would be crowned with glory and honour. We couldn't be of our own merits, but he was. How? Because he suffered death. The Bible over and over again, if you read through it, makes a profound connection between suffering and glory. The two cannot be separated. And it starts with the life, death and resurrection of Jesus himself, but then it extends to embrace all of us who are joined to him through faith. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He has gone before us in God's great glorification project for all his people. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, all of us who believe, contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Whose glory? The glory which comes from the Lord. We are becoming more Christ-like. And that is glorious. In our life of faith and with the Holy Spirit living within us, we now begin to reflect that glory of Christ back in ever-increasing measure to the world around us. In our words, in our actions, yes, even in our faces as we walk about the streets. And yet this is just the beginning. There is so much more that is promised. If we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43, in the resurrection of the dead, after we've died, it says the body that is sown is perishable. It rots in the ground. But it is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. In our life of faith and with the Holy Spirit living within, we, we just reflect Christ in ever-increasing measure. And that glory continues after our death. Our glorification will come to this explosive consummation. Paul says, in various of his letters, he uses slightly different words in each. He says our life on earth here is just a light momentary affliction that's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Light now, weighty glory later. Paul says he considers our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And one day, the glorified God-man, Jesus Christ, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious 
body. Hallelujah. By the end of God's big story, we've gone full circle. It started with us made in glory. It ends with us in the new creation being remade in glory. The human bearers of the divine image in the creation will once again be glorious image bearers in that new creation. God's big story is his story of glory lost and glory restored through Christ. So how does this relate to our passage, Matthew 17, 1 to 13? Well, I think the big story of salvation provides a really important framework for this part of Matthew's gospel. You see, for many Christians, this story of the transfiguration is is really quite a puzzle. Why did it happen? What does it mean? What difference does it make to my life today? So, I think we need to look at Matthew 17 in the light of what comes just before. I'm always saying the context before in a passage is is one of the most important things to look at when you want to understand your passage. What comes immediately before? And the answer is Matthew chapter 16 comes just before, and that is all about the suffering of Christ. Matthew 16, 13 says, Jesus and his disciples are near Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is in what's called the Golan Heights. I remember when I was younger, there was so much fighting. It was always on the news, the Golan Heights. Um, But the Golan Heights are right up in the very far north of modern-day Israel. And that's where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Who were they? Well, they were all great forerunners who boldly proclaimed the message from God for his people at the time. Then we get to verse 16. Jesus then says to Simon, ask Simon Peter, who do you say I am? He says, in his great confession of Jesus' identity. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then in verse 21 of chapter 16, Jesus moves on to the next stage. He thinks, right, they've got my identity. So he then starts to teach them that he must suffer and that he must be killed. But on the third day, he will rise again raised to life. Verses 22 and 23, they can't understand or accept what he's saying. They just don't understand. A suffering servant, but we want messianic glory now. We don't want a suffering servant. Verse 24, Jesus then goes on to talk to them about the cost of being a disciple. He tells them, it's not only him who has to suffer, Almost certainly, they will have to suffer as well. And in fact, they must be prepared to suffer and to die for the gospel, which is what's going to happen to him. So I think it's no coincidence that the next thing that follows on in Matthew's gospel after this encounter, this conversation, this teaching from Jesus, is the transfiguration. 
You see, Matthew is setting out what is to be the pattern in Christ's kingdom. The glory is lost, a time of suffering, and then we get the glory restored. The pathway of suffering must come first. The pathway of glory will only come after. The heavenly glory and the shameful cross sit here in a jarring juxtaposition. They're in a very uncomfortable counterpoint. Maybe we just want the glory. We don't want the suffering. Verse 28 of chapter 16, Jesus says that some of those who are standing there, the disciples, will not die until they have seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Many of his followers would live to be eyewitnesses of his crucifixion, of his resurrection, of his ascension, eyewitnesses and participants in Pentecost, and in the growth of the whole, the early church all across the whole of the ancient world, and would be key players in making that happen. Yet he says, his glorious kingdom will be built upon the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of his people. It's a famous quote from the early church father, Tertullian. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was the case in the first four centuries of the church. It's very much the case today. We were thinking about that watch list of the 50 most persecuted countries. There are many every day who die because they will not bow the knee to anyone other as Lord other than Jesus across our world today. And that leads to the growth of the church. So suffering and glory must move forward hand in hand to fulfill God's great plan for the earth. Suffering, our suffering, is not, of course, to achieve salvation. Jesus has done it all, and we will celebrate that when we have communion shortly. Christ has done that. But our suffering may be needed to build his kingdom in our current generation, here and in other parts of the world. And we mustn't run away from that. Secondly, then, Moving into our passage at last of Matthew 17, we then see in the transfiguration story a foretaste of the glory of Christ. Now, chapter 17, verse 1 says, six days later. That's very specific. It's a very precise time gap linking the predictions of Christ's suffering and this revelation of his glory this foretaste of his future glory as well. If we look at the, this is zoomed in on map I put up earlier, the very north part of Israel, it says that Peter, uh, Jesus led Peter, James and John up a high mountain. Peter, James and John, his three most trusted disciples. Very probably this high mountain will have been Mount Hermon. It towers above the garrison town of Caesarea Philippi. It goes up to around 9,000 feet, almost 3,000 meters. 
And it's on this mountain that the suffering servant and the glorious Messiah are seen together. Christ's self-sacrifice and God's vindication of him. Shedding light on the true glory of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 2, Jesus says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became like dazzling white. All very mysterious to us. Where, where else in the Bible do we hear something very similar to that? It's in John's vision of the glorious, resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus back in heaven, his face shone, his clothes were dazzling white, and he was moving among the seven churches, moving amongst his church as this ascended glorious Lord. So it's this encounter, this experience of the transfiguration, it's giving the disciples a preview of how Christ will look to the world when he comes again in glory to judge. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter writes very simply of this. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And of course, in the famous, oh, sorry, that's Mount Hermon towering above Caesarea Philippi. Uh, I think it's even a ski resort in, in the winter there now. It's high enough. In the great prologue to John's gospel, John doesn't include an account of the transfiguration. That's in all three of the synoptic gospels. But he does say this in the prologue. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. It's describing this transfiguration experience. Now, we may not be able to see Jesus in this way today, at this moment, but we can enjoy our relationship with him day by day, through prayer, through worship, whether individually or collectively, like we're here this morning. We can build up our knowledge of who he is, of what he's done for us, but also our knowledge of him in personal relationship with him. I think so often our vision of Christ can be far too small. We can treat him a bit like he's a mobile phone in our pockets that we can refer to when we want some information or some guidance or, uh, or use to communicate, but, but we don't see him as anything more than a tool in our lives to achieve our own objectives and goals. That's far too vision a small. Far too small a vision. Or we can see him perhaps as being, Jesus as being perhaps a slightly better version of ourselves. What we would like to be like, if only we could be. But this transfiguration experience would have absolutely stunned the disciples. I was recently in Madrid and I saw this carving on a church door. So the, the right-hand picture is just a zoom in on the top bit of it so we can see it clearly. And it's this transfiguration story being, being put into a carving. You see the three disciples at the bottom looking absolutely terrified and then the three characters above 
on the right, zoomed in, you can see Jesus in the middle, and then Moses and Elijah. Moses on the left, you can actually see there's the stone tablets and the Ten Commandments. On the right is Elijah, the great prophet, declaring God's word, and they're standing there with him. It's a visualization of, of this story. These two Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah then, they suddenly step in on the scene. Well, what's this all about, we wonder? It's not really clear how Peter and the others knew who they were. Maybe they did have stone tablets and so on with them to, to identify themselves and the clothing they wore, but, but somehow anyway, they are identified as Moses and Elijah. And then another strange reaction. Peter offers to make them shelters for each of the three. Well, I suppose if they were 9,000 feet up and maybe it was a bit chilly up there, that's, that's what they needed. Maybe it's part of the culture that you always offer hospitality to a stranger who appears. So maybe Peter just went into default mode and offered hospitality. So it's Moses, the supreme lawgiver, the liberator of his people, and Elijah, the mighty prophet. Remember, in the Old Testament, both of these had experienced their finest hours on a mountaintop. With Moses, it was receiving the Ten Commandments at Sinai. With Elijah, it was doing battle with the prophets of Baal, the powers of that were against God on Mount Carmel. Both of them were harbingers in their day of God's revelation to us. So their presence is marking Jesus out as their successor, the next one in the story of God's big story from Genesis to Revelation that they are a part of or were a part of. And remember, Moses and Elijah both made very unusual departures from this life. Moses died, and Deuteronomy 34, 6 says, but no one knew where he had been buried. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. And though they searched, no one could find him, says 2 Kings 2, verse 11. And Elijah's dramatic exit... This had led to a prophetic hope in Israel that one day Elijah would return. And when he came back, that would signal the end of time and the coming of the kingdom. So that was a commonly held view at the time, that Elijah's return was going to signal something great was about to happen and the end would come. And if we go back to chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew has already identified that John the Baptist as being the new Elijah. So Jesus then is explaining that further in verses 13 to 15. He's alluding to a well-known Old Testament prophecy from the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, which says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord when comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children 
to their parents. Elijah coming again. There was a a prophetic expectation amongst the people at that time. Now Jesus is simply reaffirming that the recently beheaded John the Baptist is that Elijah that was being referred to by Malachi. And that now he, Jesus, will take up the baton. That Jesus, verse 12, will suffer the same fate. But for Jesus, it won't be the end of the story. Uniquely, he will rise again from the dead and he will reign in the power and glory of the Father. The transfiguration is a pledge to us that he, Jesus, will accomplish this. And of course, he will be accomplishing it in in the coming weeks and and months from this incident. Then in verse 5, we read that a cloud comes down. Again, a cloud is so often in the Old Testament a symbol of God's majestic presence amongst his people. The cloud. Like the cloud they experienced in the wilderness during the Exodus story. And then Moses and Elijah are gone. Those forerunners have played their part. They can now fade away again to their rest. Only the glorious Lord Jesus remains on the mountainside to continue his mission. And as if the presence of Moses and Elijah had not been enough validation for Jesus, the voice of God himself booms out in testimony to Jesus, his son. The father settles the matter completely. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. The father affirms two things about Jesus. That he loves his son with total love. And he's well pleased with his son. He delights in him. He delights in his holiness. The way he reflects the image of the father. And the voice of God said these same two things at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when the Holy Spirit came down and anointed him and set him up to start this ministry. And now as it moves through to its climax, we've had the predictions of the cross coming, the way of suffering. It comes again. Centuries before, Isaiah had spoken these words from God about the future suffering servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1. He said, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Same words as he then said to Jesus. Jesus, the suffering servant. Years afterwards, Peter commented in his second letter. He said, he, that's Jesus, received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. God's final words then to the disciples and yes, to us as well. Final words about this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Clear and simple. Listen to him. Listen to him. And you know, that's still God's instruction to us today. If we pick up a bit of this vision of the glory, we should listen to him. Jesus said, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And that's not just the easy commandments. It's the tough ones as well. Jesus said, not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. It's a divine call for us to obedience to Jesus. Obedience to his teaching. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then we get the compassion of Christ showing. See, at this point, the disciples moved from an offering of hospitality to sheer terror. Not surprising, really, all this going on. They just fell down before the Lord of glory, rather like Isaiah did before the throne in Isaiah 6. Just as Moses and Elijah themselves had fallen down before the Lord in awe at Sinai and on Mount Carmel. What does Jesus say to them when they've reached that point of total submission? Get up. Don't be afraid. You know, don't be afraid is one of the commonest things that Jesus says all the way through his ministry. Don't be afraid. I'm here. We should remember that, especially when that suffering comes. Jesus sharing words of care words of compassion. They had glimpsed the awe-striking glory of Christ. And now as they descended the mountain, it was like coming down off a hill walk again. All they saw is the familiar Jesus who they'd spent the last three years with, their friend, the one who loved them, who cared for them so much, a man who was just like them, yet, yet without sin. The glory this time had only been very temporary. It was just a little snapshot. You see, Christ's mission of salvation was not yet done. His suffering still lay ahead. All we could have was a wee taste, a foretaste of that glory. But the suffering had to happen before the great glory could be restored. Only after that pathway of suffering and death Could there be glory for Christ? Could there be glory for the disciples? And yes, could there be glory for us? Matthew gives us the wonderful prospect that at the final judgment, the righteous, that's those who've been put right by grace through faith in Christ, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. It's another way of saying, listen up, this is important. Just as Jesus shone like the sun at the transfiguration, so we can shine too. We will shine too. The transfiguration wasn't just some temporary stripping away of a, of a veneer of humanity to reveal this glowing core inside him. No, it's not that Jesus has divinity underneath and a little veneer of humanity on top. Jesus is totally God and totally man from the centre to the surface, mixed together. 
No, this was a foretaste of the glorious human body that Jesus would have after the resurrection, after the ascension, when he's back with his Father, when he's seated at the right hand in glory. And it's the same glorified human body that all believers in Christ will receive and we will share with Jesus when we are fully glorified in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a big vision for us for the future. And on that day, we won't just be seeing the transfigured Christ like the disciples were on that day. Rather, we will be transfigured with Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, When Christ appears, we shall truly be like him, for we will see him as he is. And that will become our own experience. The Bible describes this great salvation story then, created from dust, having dominion given us over the world, self-destruction through sin, redemption through Christ's suffering and death, and then transfiguration, transformation from glory to glory. Yes, if you look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, in the letter to Laodicea, the Laodicean church, it says, we will even share the very throne in heaven with the Father and the Son. Boy, that's going to be a big throne. Taken up to the glory of the new creation. And how? All by his grace. Nothing we've done ourselves. But what should we do in the meantime? We live in a broken world of suffering and loss. This is a child-headed family in Malawi that I, I met back in March after Cyclone Freddy had destroyed the front of their house. That's what they're living in. That's another family that's lost the front of their house. They're just keeping the roof up with a pole. How can we make that glory shine through even now? That's an aid distribution exercise to those who are really suffering as a result of that cyclone. And I had the privilege to be part of that by showing the character of Christ to the world around us. I said, the glory of God is the, the attributes, the character, the nature of God publicly displayed to those around us, seen in our lives. So by giving ourselves to the service of others and by proclaiming the gospel to a needy world around so that they too may be drawn into this great vision of glory restored. Let's pray. Second Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Father, we pray that we will live our lives in a way that will display that, 
that glory, that we will be transformed ourselves, that uh, we will be reflectors of your image to those around us in so much need, whether it's here, Malawi, or anywhere else in the world, and that we will be faithful proclaimers of your gospel so that others may be brought into be partakers of that great glory in eternity, starting now with transformation of their lives. Thank you for the power of the gospel, that it isn't just some little thing, but it's utterly transforming, that it reaches into every part of our lives. And Lord, we pray as we come to your table here and we celebrate your death on the cross, that we will see where that leads, that leads to such a great salvation, such a great redemption. And we thank you, we praise you, and we worship you for that. In Jesus' great name, amen.